Hey, good morning, Thrive Church. Happy New Year to you. I'm so glad that you've decided to spend part of your New Year's uh, Day celebration with us here um, online as we uh, greet the New Year together. I wanted to finish off um, the Christmas uh, noise series. I got one more thing that I think is worthwhile um, to talk about. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, we'll move around a little bit, but that's the fundamental story. It'll be familiar to you. I know it's uh, one that we've read before, and uh, I'm going to read it. I'm going to make some comments, and I'm going to offer a thought or two, some things to think about. So Matthew chapter 2, uh, and I'm going to be, be uh, beginning with verse 1. <clears throat> okay, here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. <laughs> yeah, right. After um, they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord, and we believe it. Now, there's lots of stuff in here and uh, things that we should uh, probably uh, talk about. And, and the most important thing, I think, is this idea of the Magi. What are they? You know, tradition has it. There's three of them because we have a Christmas carol that says that, right? So we know that that must be true. No, not quite. Tradition has it that it could have been upwards of 12. And they were uh, wise men. Uh, that's probably a great way of describing them. In the ancient Near East, you had this, um, I want to say class, but it was more of a, um, uh, a job or a role. Um, magi were influential people in certain courts that paid attention to the stars. They were astrologers, not astronomers, astrologers. And they believed that they could interpret the heavens to help um, human beings and specifically rulers, um, govern the people well, how to live life, but ultimately that that which was divine revealed itself in the stars. But they were also interpreters of dreams. Now, the first time we come across this particular group of individuals, this particular occupation, we find in the book of Daniel. Read the first couple of chapters and you'll see. 
Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember them? They were all taken from Jerusalem and brought into captivity, but eventually entered the service of the Babylonian king as essentially magi. Um, people who were <clears throat> trained in a specific way, in a particular way of understanding things, but also statecraft, of course, um, as well as dream interpretations. And, of course, Daniel uh, exceeded in all of these things. And we can read about that in, that in the book that bears his name. I find it really interesting that um, they're warned in a dream not to uh, go back to Herod, but return uh, to their own land by a different different route. <clears throat> so what's interesting to me, though, is that when we when we look at um, astrology in particular, first and foremost, you need to understand it was forbidden for for Jews to participate in astrology or anything like that, because Hebrew people were supposed to rely on God, on Yahweh for everything. And Yahweh was going to reveal himself the way that he was going to reveal himself. And it's not necessarily through the stars. But interestingly enough, Daniel and his friends are taken into that particular service and they learn how to do it. And so here's the thing. Their Jewish people were not to pursue um, things like astrology, but they also weren't supposed to be afraid of it either. And I think that's an important thing to remember. The other thing that I think is, is impressive here is that that God reveals in some way to folks outside of Judaism that a Messiah had been born. Now there's a lot of things a lot of things that have, have been written about this star. Was it a specific heavenly event that actually occurred and it caught their attention? Perhaps. But if you know anything, and hopefully you don't, anything about astrology you also know that certain parts of the sky are associated with different things. And so perhaps there could have been a pattern in the sky where a certain star was rising, was going along a particular path in the part of the sky associated with Judea. Whatever the case, you have some individuals outside of the Jewish religious tradition who recognize that something has happened that a king has been born. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. Traditionally speaking, you have the 12 days of Christmas, and it's more than just the Christmas carol that everybody either tries to ignore, avoid, or, or modify to make it a little more interesting, right? The 12 days of Christmas actually start on Christmas Day. That's the first day of Christmas. Yes, the partridge, pear tree, all of that, first day of Christmas. But the 12th day of Christmas is actually Epiphany. And that's when the church celebrates the fact that the Messiah is revealed to non-Jews, to Gentiles. And that's the story that's happening here. This is the 12th day of Christmas. So I'm a little early. I understand that, but it's okay. Um, actually, this is the fifth day of Christmas, I think. And so this will be, what, five golden rings or whatever, uh, whatever your favorite version is. But the, the point is, is that you have a group of individuals who are considered wise and influential who recognize the fact that something extraordinary has occurred and they show up. They show up. 
and please understand, it, it's not just three kings riding on cam camels. It's probably more. There would have been an entire um, caravan, and it would have been impressive, and it would have caught the attention of a lot of folks. And so when they show up in Jerusalem, because why, why not show up at the capital? You know, you show up in Jerusalem as the capital. That's where you're supposed to find, you know, kings. And so they show up and they ask that very simple question. And here's what it says in verse 3. And you, you, we just read it. It's, it said that Herod and all of Jerusalem were disturbed. Well, yeah, because Herod's thinking, I don't know about any other king, right? Now, here's the interesting thing about the word disturbed. It means troubled or distressed, and it carries with it this idea of roiling waters. Have you ever been um, either, you know, at the ocean or one of the big lakes, and there's a, a rocky spot, and you see the surf crashing the shore, and the, the water then, like, kind of crashes in on itself, and it looks just incredibly dangerous? That's roiling waters, and that's the idea that's being communicated here. It's a big deal. There were folks that were agitated, and why not? The potential entire power structure of the region was now in question. Is there a rival to the Her uh, to Herod's dynasty, essentially? That's the question that's being asked. The balance of power could be shifting. What's Herod going to do? How's he going to? Let me tell you, um, he's a bad dude, and he is not above knocking off rivals which obviously we know is his intention all along because after this story, after the part we, we read, he goes and he ends up killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem under the uh, certain age. I, he's not a nice guy by, by any stretch. Um, when you have questions of succession and you have potentially divine signs, this is a big deal. And Herod is going to take notice of it. So please understand, remember, this is real life, right? And these are real people and they're, they're, they're attempting to live their lives in real time. And no, they don't have the benefit of the story like, like we do. But Herod is going to do what, what rulers and kings always do. They're going to try to grasp and hold on to power. You know, we've been talking a lot about uh, noise, you know, the, the noise at Christmas time. I talked about the noise of history and the fact that you have a history, I have a history, we both have family histories, or, you know, frankly, a little weird. And despite all that, Jesus still came. And Jesus has a weird history of his own. He's got some people in his family that are a little, hmm, you know, you're in good company. And he came anyway. We also have the noise of public opinion, and it just seems to be accelerated on social media. And we have the noise of tradition, and, and please remember, traditions are great, and I'm so glad we have them, but they're, they're not a replacement for real relationship. And all of tradition should serve those relationships and, and not, not try to replace them for some kind of an exchange. And of course, you know, at Christmas, we talked about the noise of celebration, right? There's all kinds of noise, and some of it's good, and some of it's distracting, but it's all there, and it's all present. And the whole point is we want to try to tune into the signal. What is God actually telling us? And not just hear the static of the noise. <clears throat> so as we enter a new year, and please understand, as we enter an election cycle, that's happening. 
starts this year, goes into the next. There's going to be a lot of roiling waters. And I think it's fair to say there's the noise of politics. It's just part of our society right now. And I feel like within our culture, we've been moving to polar extremes for so long. I, I, I wonder how things are going to work themselves out. But I don't think the roiling waters are over, not by any stretch of the imagination. I think they are alive and well, and as Christians, we need to pay attention to that. And you're going to hear all kinds of accusations from both camps, right? You're even going to hear it from camps that are smaller and don't necessarily have a national presence or whatever, but you're going to hear all kinds of accusations. And at the, at the end of the day, at, at the at the core of all of it, central to those accusations is fear. It's just flat out fear. And fear is a powerful tool because it changes the way people think and it changes the way people behave. And we need to be aware of the fear mongers. We, we, we need to be aware of those things and not just fall into the trap of trying to do what's expedient or to try to do the things that somebody else says based on on fear and i think that this idea of fear is going to work itself into almost every aspect of our culture it already has to a certain extent but as followers of jesus we want to take a different approach we don't want to fall into the fear trap we actually want to live by faith um, and not by the fear now that's an easy thing to say and it's very cliche and i want to talk a little bit about what that actually means and and hopefully give you something that you can walk into the new year with and i'm really thankful that um, uh, bill johnson who's the uh, pastor at bethel church in reading uh, points out a couple of warnings that jesus gave and i want to talk about those um, because i think they're very useful i think they're insightful especially for what we're all going to be facing this year In Mark chapter 8, Jesus makes um, a warning. He tells his disciples, be careful of yeast, the yeast of Herod and the yeast of the Pharisees. Two things. Now, what does yeast do? Okay, Yeast works itself throughout the loaf of bread and causes it to rise, right? So if you want to see those things rise, you have to have that yeast. And so what he says is beware of the yeast, because when you add a little bit of heat to it and it's allowed to grow, these are the things, these are kind of the default ways of thinking. And you, you need to be careful of this particular kind of yeast. These particular ideas of working themselves into the bread of your life or into the culture or into your family, whatever it happens to be, you need to be aware of these, these two things. And the first, um, first one we'll take is the one of the Pharisees, because it's really about religion, Right. The Pharisees were a religious organization, highly conservative, uh, very inward-facing. And you need to understand that, well, there's tradition there. There are laws. There are rules. God is certainly at the center of all those things, but he's very impersonal and he's powerless. And so, consequently, the, the uh, Pharisees were the self-appointed keepers of, you need to do what God tells you to do. And if you don't know what it is, we'll take care of that and we'll tell you what that is. It's just another power base. But God, in this particular case, is impersonal. And God is 
powerless um, to manage uh, all the things that are going on, at least within that religious system, which is really strange because that's not who God is, but that's who the Pharisees ended up. And we do the same thing too, right? We'll talk about that more in a moment. Because the other side to this goes hand in hand with it, and it's it's the east of Herod, which is which is the political piece of the puzzle. It's it's humanistic in in, in nature. It's you know human centered, and you you may acknowledge God, but don't bring him into the politics because it has nothing to do with it. I remember several years ago, one candidate said, "I'm not going to allow my my religious um, beliefs um, affect how I govern." And I thought to myself, well, that's a lie. How, how, how can you do that? Because that shapes us. The things that we believe, um, the faith that we have, the way we were brought up affects the way that we're going to govern. I, I think that was an incredibly naive statement to make. It sounded great on a soundbite and it probably placated a lot of people who were watching TV, but I don't know how that's actually true. And so we have to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of thinking about an impersonal God and um, a powerless God and that type of religion. And we can't just expect uh, political expediency. And this is what often happens is that we exchange um, our authority, our prophetic voice for something that's far less, that we settle for something that's, that's far less. These ideas are common ways of thinking about things, and, and we do them. And I've seen this, especially over the last, you know, 30, 40 years. We, we come at a issue of culture, um, an issue in society from a good heart, you know, because we believe that God cares about people. But if God doesn't move in the way that we want him to move, or if he doesn't move as fast as we want him to do, then we try to take matters into our own hands. And so we'll legislate things and we will, we will sue. Now, here's the thing. Two things. One is, I, I'm not saying don't be involved in politics. You should be. We, we're given that right. We should exercise it. And secondly, I'm glad we live in a society where there is a legal remedy to things, okay? So don't get me wrong when I, when I say that. But when we rely solely on those um, legal aspects, we lose the relationship we have with God. And we have to be very careful about that. So I'm not necessarily knocking politics. And if you walk out of here thinking, you know, pastor doesn't think you should engage in the political process. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying your politics are, your politics come from your relationship with God, not the other way around. You don't start with the politics, you start with God and you work your way out of there. God's not impersonal and he's not powerless. In fact, he wants to partner with his people to affect the types of change that we know that we need to see in our culture and our society. And we've got to follow that as best we can and not exchange or settle for something far less than what's, what's possible. It's almost like we, we make these statements, the Bible says, and then instead of turning to the God who wrote the Bible, we 
hope that our political parties and our uh, court system will actually, you know, carry out the things that we want. Let's leave room for God to affect the change that we know needs to occur. Let's pursue him instead. Now, when it comes to this idea of yeast, Jesus actually mentions a third type of yeast. It's in another part of, of the Gospels, but nonetheless, it's there. So we have the, the yeast of Herod, and we have the yeast of the Pharisees, but we also have the yeast of the kingdom. You can find it in Matthew chapter 13. If you're interested, you can go there, look it up, verse 33, and he talks about how when you make bread and you work the yeast into it, that's the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus used all kinds of great metaphors for the kingdom. My favorite is the kingdom of God is like a weed. I really love that one, but I also like this one. The kingdom of God is like yeast. It works its way into the culture and it causes things to rise and, and it can be a very beautiful thing. The thing that we have to remember is that there is a kingdom and if there is a kingdom, there's a king. And that's what we pursue, is we want to put the yeast of the kingdom into our culture, into our society, into our families, into our neighborhoods, into our cities, and all of that. Workplaces, right? All of that's what we're trying to work, is this idea of the kingdom into all those aspects to it. And it's a relationship-based thing. It's the relationship we have with the king. In probably his most um, famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 says something truly fascinating about the kingdom. First thing he says is, don't worry. God understands the things that you need. He understands those things, so don't worry about them. But then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all this stuff will be added to you. All these things that you're worried about, those will be added to you if you seek the kingdom and his righteousness. Now, here's the thing, and I've mentioned this before, and I think it's, it's worth repeating over and over again. The kingdom and righteousness are one and the same. Righteousness is an aspect of the kingdom. We're not talking about two separate things. If you want to pursue the kingdom, the best way to do that is to start with righteousness to take responsibility for your own thoughts, your own habits, your own actions, to bring them to a place of, well, submission, obedience to God and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? How do I pursue your righteousness? How can I be holy as you are holy? Allow that to be part of your relationship. That's where you begin the kingdom. See, we wanna make the kingdom all about, um, um, you know, reaching out to uh, the poor and the disenfranchised. And, and the kingdom is about those things, but it always starts here. And I've, I've said this before, and I believe this with all my heart, that anytime you really want to see justice, you really want to see kingdom sorts of things, it always starts in our own hearts first. Revival begins here before it begins out there. And so what I want you to do is to start the new year with righteousness, to pursue that. Because there's the noise of politics, and it's going to get to be a deafening roar over the next two years. And if you really want to know how to not only survive but to thrive in it, 
you pursue righteousness. You begin with righteousness in your own heart, in your own behaviors, in your own family. You start there and you begin to work yourself out. That becomes the center of all of it. God, where are you and I? Where do we begin? You're my king. What do you have to say to me about what I do next? That's where this begins. And ultimately, that's the only thing that's going to change a very bizarre world. So that's my encouragement for you in this new year is to pursue righteousness. And by doing so, you're going to be produce, pursuing the, the king and the kingdom. And you want to see all these wonderful things added to your own life and the lives of the people around you? Start with righteousness. Let's pray. Hey, God, thanks for a new year. Thank you for these wonderful people who call uh, Thrive Church home. And Lord, for everyone who's listening today, I just pray your blessing on their year, that they would have the courage to ultimately uh, pursue righteousness and to pursue righteousness uh, your righteousness, and that you would lead them and guide them in the way um, that they need to go. Not in a condemning way, but in the convicting sort of, oh my goodness, I have something so much better for you kind of way. That they would um, really feel your presence this year more so than any other year. And I'm going to thank you in advance for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Good to be with you, even digitally. Um, next week, we'll be back at Tulsa Ballet. Invite you to be part of that with us as we begin to look at the new year again together. <clears throat> It'll be exciting times. So until next week, grace and peace.